Thank you. I'm going to need this. Hi. I'm overwhelmed at this moment. Overwhelmed with gratitude for the part that you have played in Christ Community Church. Overwhelmed at your investment financially in our, in our toddler church. You have invested to where we, we were able to redo a building completely on the inside that people come and visit and feel this is a nice place to be. That matters, doesn't it? We keep it very cold as well. <laughs> Peter, when he came to preach, he said, this, this is a warm church. It's not warm, but this is a warm church. It's nice, it's good feel. He was freezing while he was preaching. Thank you for your investment in prayer for us. Uh, I do not take it lightly. I hope you don't mean it lightly when in different scenarios and settings we might come across one another and you communicate that you're praying for us and praying for me and my family. I don't take that lightly. Please continue praying, but thank you for your investment in prayer. Thank you for how you have sown into us spiritually in a way that, that one day we will enjoy around the throne of God all that you have invested in your prayers for us. In, in beginning the church and now walking with it these past couple years, we have noticed that every one of our prayers gets answered. And I can say with confidence that every one of your prayers has been answered. So keep on praying. The part where I well up is my gratitude and appreciation for your investment relationally in those who you have sent to plant Christ Community Church. I have to thank Bill and Nancy for investing in a young couple for a long time when it looked like they were never going to change. But now we get to experience the fruit of them growing and loving and serving the Savior. Milton and Katie Ulmer are a blessing to Christ Community Church. I thank you for the investment that you made in Stu and Nancy Masson. I really enjoy having them. I, I've communicated to the church numerous times that I have, I've always been in church with them. I showed up here in 1985 as a nine-year-old boy and they came around the same time. Always knew Mr. Stu and Miss Nancy. But they have, been, they have been parents to me in this journey. Thanks for sending my mom. Yes. Yes. Growing up here, my mom just wanted me to love church as much as she did. And what a blessing for us to still be loving the same church 
together as we serve. That she makes it her mission to introduce herself to every person that comes to visit and find out who they are and seek connection points. She'll come over after church and she's updating me on who she got to meet and their background and their story and how they found out about us. The Lord has been faithful to send visitors nearly every single week. I think we've only had five meetings where we didn't have any visitors. It's amazing. It really is amazing. Thank you for your investment in me. And my wife. And my children. This has been a wonderful journey, but it would not be possible without you. Now, the fruits of your investment look like this. You send a Stu and Nancy Masson, who uh, just in typical New Orleans, through a series of relationships, one being Denny and Roz's daughter-in-law, who's a nurse caring for uh, high, high something pregnancy, high risk, <laughs> high risk pregnancy. That family's new to the area, has only been there a year at that time, maybe just nine months at the time. Tiana introduces Nancy to this lady, and Nancy loves her and her family into the church to where they now have been consistent. They're members now in the church, and they love Christ Community Church because of your investment. Your investment looks like a Benny and Monica, St. Seer, who in our first Christmas open house showed up on the verge of divorce, looking for church and God to finally be to them what they can be, because what he can be, because they, they have nothing left. They've, ex, they've expended everything they know to do. Their tank is empty in their marriage. They're unfulfilled. They don't know what to do. And they show up, and on that Sunday, trust Christ for the first time. And through a series of meetings with them, divorce is not on the table anymore. It's amen. That's what your investment looks like. Now they serve in our children's ministry. It looks like a couple who was looking, they made a kind of a little compromise. She's from Baton Rouge area. He's from someplace in Mississippi. And halfway was Covington. So they decided to live there. They've been searching for a church. And she would tell these stories about how growing up in Baton Rouge in the church, that it was just a family. And she knew that, they, that God had that type of experience. And the husband was saying, I've never had that. I don't know what you're talking about. She sent me a nice email one day, and she said, then comes along Christ Community Church, where we have found family to be a part of, to join ourselves to, and to raise our kids. That's because of your investment. It's because of your investment. So please, be proud of the fruit, because the Lord is. The Lord has used it, and he's used it in miraculous ways, and it's, it's fun. It's an adventure. It's enjoyable to see all that God is doing, but it's, it's, a, it's a humbling experience when you have, in hearts full of faith, sent us to do it. 
as I've come to know church planters, more often than not, I would say the majority of time churches are planted is because there's a riff with a church. And it looks something like a split, and so this church gets planted. But we thankfully have a very different story. We have a story where the church was full of faith, and we, we talk about Lakeview Christian Center that way, that it's a church where faith is abundant, and we, we were sent from them to begin Christ Community Church. To where, on a couple of occasions, it struck people as very odd. Really? And y'all are still relating with one another? Yes. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. I thank you for your investment in sending Jason over there this morning so he can fill in for me. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool deal. All right, if you would open to Mark chapter 8. Our passage this morning will be from verses 22 through 26. As we consider the whole gospel account in Mark, we have to realize that Mark is, is using, uh, he's quoting Jesus' title of himself, Son of Man, and you see that phrase often in the gospel account in Mark. It's Jesus referring to himself, it's actually what he referred to himself the most with the title he referred to himself with the most, Son of Man. And it points to Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man is given authority and dominion and the kingdom. So Mark, in the first half, particularly the first half of this gospel account, is proclaiming the king, to uh, the king of all creation, the king of the universe, the king of God's people. He's proclaiming the king to his people. He's proclaiming this to people who have face persecution as Christians. They faced persecution in ways that, that they, didn't, they didn't sign up for. It wasn't on the brochure. But Mark's letting them know the king is the king. And in this passage, we learn that the king brings sight. And there's a kingdom sight about, and that's the title of this message, there's a kingdom sight that the, the Lord, that Jesus himself, the son of man, the king of all glory, wants his people to understand so they can see him. Mark 8, verse 22, and they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him, and he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Lord, we come to you in need. We come to you with minds that wander, with misunderstanding. Right at, right at the doorstep. And Lord, we ask that by the gift of your Holy Spirit and the gift of illumination, we would see you in this passage. Jesus, proclaim yourself to us today. Proclaim yourself to us in a way that leaves us affected and changed forever. Lord, help us understand that today heaven takes place in our hearts. 
Heaven takes place in our minds. And we ask for the power of heaven to come and touch us. Jesus, touch our sight. Touch our minds. We yield to you. We submit ourselves to you, word. In your name we pray. Amen. After my senior year in high school, in the summer before starting college, participated in a missions trip to Mexico. The church, it was with Lakeview, uh, the church had been on a couple different trips, and this one was like the others. We went down into Mexico, up into the mountains of, toward central Mexico. And as we were there, uh, things were, it was a huge team, we were split up into different areas, and there was a uniqueness about answered prayer on that trip. That God was, was just looking for ways to prove himself through our prayers. We, would, we actually we went to a, a particular village and asked how we could pray for them. It was a farming village, and the, the man, one man said, pray for rain. We haven't had it in three months. So we prayed for rain. And that afternoon, it rained. <laughs> just one of those, this really happened? God, we prayed, he answered, well, we were experiencing many healings on that trip, too. We were praying for folks, and they were experiencing the healing power of God in their lives. And I remember after a, one particular service, we were gathering around praying, and, and a little old Mexican lady, about this tall, came up, and she asked, she had gone blind, and she asked that she would regain her sight so she could read the Bible. What a humble request. And we began praying for her. And as we were praying for her, I was remembering this passage in my mind. Now, uh, probably uh, around two years before that, God just got a hold of my heart in high school. And I just started reading the Bible. And I said, I just want to read the Bible every night. And I committed to at least a chapter a night. So I always had my Bible with me. I'd finish my homework. I would just, pray, uh, just read a, a chapter of the Bible, then go to bed. But I loved the short books because I felt I liked the sense of accomplishment in reading a short book. So I read all the, the, the epistles and James and Philemon was a favorite. Jude was great. But it, when it came to the gospel, I loved Mark because it's the shortest gospel. So I knew I had to, I knew I'd want to read about Jesus and I was reading. So I had this in my mind as we're praying for this lady and I sensed this weird prompting. Touch her eyes. I went, absolutely not. That is freaky. <laughs> I'm 18 years old. Um, no, I got another guy. He's praying. He's doing a good job. He's praying in Spanish. I don't even speak Spanish. Don't think my touch would be in Spanish. <laughs> can't, can't do that. Well, we finished praying, and he, somebody uh, guy says, bring her a Bible. So he brought her a Bible. Can you read anything? She says, no. He says, let's pray again. It's like, oh man, now we're, now we're really into this passage. Let's pray again. Let's pray. We prayed again, and I had the same prompting. Touch her eyes. I thought, no. This is too odd. We prayed, finished praying. She had the Bible. Can you read anything? She said, no, I can't see anything. So we prayed again. And now I said, all right, Lord. I felt the same prompting. So I thought, oh, okay. So I did this. <laughs> T 
touched her eyes, we prayed, and it was the most awkward feeling in the world. <laughs> After we finished praying, she had the Bible open to John 1.1, and she began to read, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Something very unique happened at that moment for me. While she was blind, I was realizing I was blind in a way as well. When she gained sight, I gained sight as well. I gained the sight of understanding a depth of God that has lasted with me. And the work of God and the power of God and the, the obedience to God that matters in the Christian life. It matters for our motivation. It matters for making every day worth it. So we're not running ourselves into the ground with endless tedium. It makes it worth it when we see God, we experience his power in our lives, and we gain sight of who he is. It mattered for me. My eyes were opened that day. It was a bit of a paradox, and paradoxes in the Bible are a unique relationship between physical and spiritual realities. To judge uh, only based on physical realities is to misunderstand. We miss God if we're looking at God and expecting him to prove himself only in a physical realm. We're not going to see him. Physical realities point to spiritual realities. In the positioning of this passage, it follows uh, Jesus has some sharp encounters with the Pharisees, people who were looking to self-determine their own relationship with God. They were, they were actually looking to be self-justified. I follow the law, therefore God should love me. God should accept me based on my performance. And the, the interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees, he lets them know, you have turned from the law of God. You think you're following the law, but your heart is what the key is, and your heart is far from me. You only seek your own fulfillment from following the law. This miracle in this positioning, after it follows, you know, the Pharisees in, in uh, chapter 8, verse 11, are demanding a sign. And then Jesus is telling the disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. So he's, he's attacking something, but he's also about getting the disciples' attention as well because the disciples were experiencing a spiritual dullness, a spiritual blindness for themselves. Physically able to see, the Pharisees were not able to see spiritually who Jesus was. The man in our passage is the opposite, unable to see physically He's able to see the king through a touch, through a word, through a spit. It's a little odd. I'm really glad the Lord didn't say spit on our eyes. <laughs> I think it would have had intervention that, at that point. All right, Jeff, you got to sit down. Here's some water. We just need to talk about this. We need to be blind in a way, in order to see Jesus. We need to be blind to our pride, our self-ambition, our own attempts at self-righteousness, our self-preservation, so we can see Jesus clearly. The physical blindness of the man, this blind man gives way to a deep spiritual reality that Jesus is on mission for everybody to see. Let me say that again. The physical blindness of this man 
gives way to a deep spiritual reality that Jesus is on mission for everyone to see. And we find that in the first couple verses, it's through in the very first verse, and they came to Bethsaida, some people brought to him a man, a blind man, and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man, what tenderness, by the hand and led him out of the village. When he had spit on his eyes, laid his hands on him. What's going on here? Mark is very clear in the first half of the gospel that he wants his readers to understand who Jesus is. He wants them to understand King Jesus. He's revealing Jesus to his audience, and his audience is experiencing intense persecution as Christians. They, they're being imprisoned. There is social alienation going on. They're being blackballed in business transactions. They are even, some of them are even clothed in freshly killed animal skins and put out in the arena for the lions. I mean, it's a particular reality that these people are facing who are reading Mark for the first time, but we can, we can understand some of that social alienation blackballed in business transactions. Why would Mark use this story of this healing to help his hearers who face persecution for loving Jesus? Who is, who is this Jesus that this passage reveals? To understand the enormity of Jesus taking this man by the hand and touching his eyes to heal his blindness, we must first review blindness as understood in the Old Testament because Jesus is a revelation of what is in the Old Testament. Blindness in the Old Testament was used to portray spiritual justice, justice in a few different components. In Exodus 4, verse 11, when God is giving Moses reason for obeying him, he asked Moses, who makes man blind? Is it not I? What is God revealing of himself? God was informing Moses that he held the ultimate decision on how men experience life. He was the judge of the entire earth. He was the judge over his creation. His making a, a, red, a, a rose red or a man blind was determined by his holy justice. In Leviticus 19.4, God's people were instructed to treat blind people fairly, to, take, to not take advantage of them in their weakness. Other scriptures commanded God's people with the obligation and even responsibility to help the blind. In obedience to this, Israel was doing justice. Today we have, the, the popular phrase today is, is social justice. They were displaying God's care of the blind in their obedience. So we have God the judge, we have God treating with justice. But there's also another aspect of this. Blindness was also a pronouncement of moral judgment. In Deuteronomy 28, blindness in the form of confusion of the mind is being described and introduced and declared as the result of disobedience to the law of God. Later on in Isaiah, three different chapters, God uses blindness to convey to his people that their hearts were confused and far from him. Jesus quotes Isaiah 29 previously in, in Mark 7 about the traditions and commandments. God's people continually went after idols and ignored him. Their hearts were blind to him and his love for them. Their hearts were blind to his preeminence. He needed to be first place. He wanted to be first place. And they said, I'm first. Here, the judge, 
has decreed a spiritual blindness of his people who have rebelled against his loving rule. They have chosen darkness instead of light. They are content to grope around in dark, seeking their own satisfaction, most importantly, seeking their own authority. They've continually tried to tell him that he should accept their blindness. Oh, what a cultural analogy is there. We have people walking around groping in the darkness, feeling their way around, and when the light of Christ is introduced, it's all of a sudden, oh, no, 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 no. God should accept me in my blindness. What arrogance, what foolery that we would tell the judge of all the earth what he should accept of us. They have continually tried to tell him that he should accept their blindness, and here's how. Because they are bringing blind animals for sacrifices. A few of the prophets are saying, why do you do this? You're bringing the lame and the blind to me. It's a pronouncement of moral judgment. So here's the question, what will God do? That's, that's the background from, for this passage. What will God do? Will he sit by idly? We, we feel the pressure building. But here, God in his greatness and love for his people and for the sake of his great name is not content to sit by. And watch as people choose what is not best. Not watch as people continually ignore him. He is the best thing for his people, and he will act for his glory so they understand it. Which then brings us to Isaiah 61. The people of God are introduced to someone who will do something very unique, who will rescue people from the vortex of selfishness and sin. God declares he will open blind eyes. It's the very same passage that Jesus, in the beginning of his ministry, in the synagogue, he finds a place in Isaiah where that was written. He didn't have Isaiah 61, so I don't know how long it took him to, to get there. He didn't have little tabs in the scroll. He had to figure out where it was, but he, he reads this. He's declaring himself, I bring sight to the blind. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Oh, the gratitude that we have and the light that we have in our minds to be able to look back on this and say, wow. But even in this moment, the people that are surrounding Jesus the most are still blind to what he's filling when he's coming. Isaiah 146 verse 8 says, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. We have a God that's revealed in his love that in his compassion for his people, he's going to remove a moral judgment that he has pronounced and he's going to do it with his son. He will vindicate his justice through his compassion. God will touch the eyes of the blind so they gain spiritual sight. Jesus is God come to his people to give sight to the blind. The power of God displayed in Jesus, came bringing God's touch. Not, not an angel who took a censer, fire from the altar, and came and touched Isaiah's lips when he declared himself unclean. Not an angel. God himself will touch his people. Jesus is the word of God's power which holds all creation in place. The cosmic power of God had come to his people to touch them and to achieve for them what they could never do on their own. A blind person cannot regain sight no matter how hard 
He might try, she might try. Jesus came bringing light to darkness. Jesus, the incarnate God, the one who holds all things together, is the word. And he's the one to whom every knee will bow. He loves so huge that he brings sight to the blind. We look at the emphasis that Mark's bring, Mark brings in this, these few verses when he declares that Jesus, look, look at all the, the pronoun he. They brought to him, verse 23, he took, led him out. He had, spit on his eyes, he laid his hands, he asked him. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes, he opened his eyes. He saw, well that was the guy saw, he opened and then what? He sent him home. Look at the emphasis of Jesus in this passage. This passage is about what Jesus has power to do, but it's also about Jesus declaring himself, revealing his mission to the people for understanding to his disciples. Jesus is identifying with the man as a man, and he's introducing himself to the blind man as the anointed one, the Messiah, just as Jesus took on the deaf man's sickness uh, in, in the previous chapter with his touch, he stuck his ear, fingers in guy's ears, he made spittle, put it on his ears, stuck his fingers in his ears. And this wasn't like this polite, it's the king of the universe. I wonder if the guy just went, mm. he can't hear, they're trying to describe to him, he doesn't know what's going on, but, but there's something happening with the tenderness that Jesus brings with his touch and his saliva. He's taking on the effects of sin in anticipation of the sacrifice he will be on the cross. This is, it's a foreshadowing of a future transaction. Jesus is tenderly telling this man, power comes from me, but your sickness, ailment, your sin, your spiritual blindness, the moral judgment that rests on you, it's going to come to me. In the Old Testament, sacrifices were brought before the priest at the altar, and the person would lay his hand on that animal and transfer the sin to that animal. Well, in this situation, the sacrifice comes to the person and touches the person. In his commentary on this passage, James Edwards says, by bestowing God's holy and healing presence on ordinary, common, and even sinful people, Jesus brings the sacred to the profane. Jesus, as the sacrifice, simultaneously pronounces judgment over spiritual blindness and points to himself as the remedy for that very judgment. Let's ask a question of our own lives. How have we experienced Jesus' touch? In our lives. This man got to experience the physical touch of Jesus bringing a physical healing, enabling spiritual sight. Kingdom sight is from God alone. Jesus gives kingdom sight. We can, we can come to a point where we can attain some natural ideas about God. We can say all the right things. We can think the right things, but we can be very deceived as we're doing that. We can we can imitate language and behavior, but we cannot see in the kingdom without Jesus touching our eyes. When we apply, it's a, it's a little warning for us, when we apply natural ideas to spiritual truths, if we're going to come to the Bible and try to interpret the Bible and we have not been touched by Jesus in a, sal, a, a saving 
work has happened in our hearts and there's not genuine conversion there, we will look into the Bible and look for an image of ourselves. We will not see the image of, of God in Christ. An awareness of Jesus' person and power, it gives us perspective when we encounter problems. We experience Jesus' touch each time we call to mind his sacrifice on our behalf. When we call to mind his bearing the brutal wrath of God toward our sins so we could be set free in him. How do we know we're seeing him? Here's the transition in this passage. There's a process of kingdom sight that we're introduced to in this passage. And the very end of verse 23 through 25 is an occurrence that's only recorded in the gospel of Mark. It's the time Jesus' touch didn't work all the way the first time. Catch that. We have the image of Jesus just dispensing miracle after miracle with, with, with ease. No obstacles. But this time, it doesn't work the first time. Did he swing and miss? Was he not? Let's, let's take it to where we go with that. When we pray for somebody and we don't see an answered prayer, we see a shadow of an answered prayer. We go to, well, I guess I wasn't prayed up enough. I guess I didn't read my Bible enough. I guess, well, let's apply that to Jesus. It didn't work. Did, was Jesus not prayed up enough? Was he not enjoying fellowship with the Father enough? Was he not, did he, want, he wasn't in the Old Testament every morning, reading through it? Listen, if we're not going to apply it to, to Jesus, we shouldn't apply it to ourselves. Why? Because in Christ, God treats us with the same veracity of love that he does his own son. But why? Why didn't it work? Is this primarily about Jesus' ineffectiveness, or could it be about something else? We know that everything Jesus did was strategic for revelation and understanding for those who are with him. It could be easy to walk away from this with doubt about Jesus' power. But he's out for understanding. He's out for our understanding more than firing away, giving signs of his Messiahship. When the Pharisees, look, he just fed 4,000 people with bread and sardines. And the Pharisees come behind him and say, show us a sign. A bunch of idiots, don't you? But look, in that passage right before this, the disciples were just as dull. The disciples are going, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. You didn't bring the bread, man. Why didn't you bring the bread? You were supposed to get the bread. Jesus says, you're missing it. Jesus wants our understanding more than just us benefiting from his miracles. Jesus is letting us know that kingdom sight involves a process, a revelation for his disciples. In Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, Apostle Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What do we see in that from faith for faith? We see a process. We see a process of revelation where God is revealing himself and we have one, we have one degree of faith that God's saying, I want you to trust me more. And I want you to trust me more so he allows and ordains difficulty 
And suffering plays a huge part in God saying humility. When we're humbled, guess what? We're looking at God saying, I thought I was something, but I need you. I didn't think I was what I thought I was. God wants us to increase in our desire for him, increase in our understanding, but it's rooted in faith. This account also informs us that while spiritual sight only occurs at the touch of Jesus, it also helps us understand that we don't see things completely clearly at first. If we have been born again for long enough, we can think of things that we thought we saw so clearly and so convincingly, only years later to realize, boy, I had it way off. I am, I have been privately up to this point, now it's publicly thankful that all my messages previous to Hurricane Katrina drowned in the floodwaters of Hurricane (laughs) Katrina. I am so very thankful. Because I remember some of the things I said. It's like, oh, a lot of passion, a lot of zeal. You didn't have enough life behind you, pal. God wants us to see him. He wants us to grow. And growth means sometimes our opinion might change. But in this passage, we see that kingdom sight is a gradual process. Our discipleship is experienced in gradual growth toward Christ-likeness. This is referred to as the doctrine of sanctification. Our becoming holy like Jesus practically in everyday life. It also points to the miracle of sustaining grace that God gives us. You know, I heard somebody pray this a few, a couple months ago. Uh, One of the guys in the church, a few of us get together on Wednesday mornings and pray, we pray for you. We pray for Lakeview Christian Center continually. We pray for your pastors. We pray for the leadership team here. We love you. So we pray for you as well. But one morning, uh, one of the guys said, Lord, thank you that I woke up believing you today. It's a little different than, Lord, thank you for the breath that I have. It's like, all right, yeah, I got breath. I'm supposed to do something with that breath. I'm supposed to praise. But he... Thank you that I woke up a believer today. And that hit me. I thought, that really is the grace of God. Because we can think, sadly, we can think of people in our lives that didn't wake up believing the same things. And it led down a path of destruction. And in the wake of that are broken families and addictions and pride. We get to wake up believers because of God's sustaining grace, not because we figured something out. God says, I'm keeping you. I'm the one keeping you. Keep loving me, but I'm keeping you. Now, whenever we talk about sanctification, there's always a need to understand justification so we don't confuse the two. Uh, This is in your notes, just a a, a paragraph on each. Justification, which is just a description for what these are. Justification is a one-time, instantaneous act where God counts our sins on Jesus and Jesus' righteousness as our own. This is that future transaction that's being foreshadowed when he touches this man with his fingers and with his spit. Thereby declaring us not guilty of sin, enabling our our union with God as his children. God justifies us 
when we put our faith in Jesus, life, death, and resurrection, we can't be more or less justified. It has no degrees. Justification is the key opening the door into sanctification. So justification happens once. But after that, we, we apply the change, the gradual change of our behavior. Look at that. Sanctification is then the gradual change of our behavior to resemble that of Jesus. It's the continual surrender to Jesus as King and Lord and the practical experience of his preeminence in our everyday lives. We pursue sanctification because we have assurance of our sonship in God. Can't, uh, we have to understand that. We pursue sanctification because we already have sonship. We've already been adopted. We're not trying to become holy so God can accept us. That occurred. That happened when we were justified, placed our faith in Christ, and God declared us not the judge, not guilty because of our faith in Christ's work on our behalf. We zealously strive for holiness without which we will not see the Lord. There are varying degrees of sanctification based on our surrender, obedience, and cooperation with the Holy Spirit. So do you see, Just I know this is very quick, the, the, the two juxtaposed to one another, but they, they play in just sanctification, proper sanctification can't happen without justification and a correct knowledge of it. While there are no degrees of justification, there are varying degrees of sanctification because it's based on our surrender. We have a part to play, our surrender our obedience and our cooperation with the Holy Spirit. The gradual progress of becoming like Jesus can be understood with the seeing of trees walking that this man saw, then seeing clearly. The fact that the man knew something about trees and that his sight was restored is meant he was once able to see, pointing to the time when man had uninterrupted access to God before sin came into the world, messing all of it up, messing up the balance of everything turning our sight into selfish ambition rather than God-glorifying selflessness. Only the touch of God can bring initial kingdom sight, enabling us to see Jesus at all. The, the Lord's touch brings sight. The Lord's touch brings clarity in what we're seeing. John Newton, uh, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, said this in a letter to a young man. Where the eyes are divinely enlightened, the soul's first views of itself and the gospel may be confused and indistinct, like him who saw men, as it were, trees walking. Yet this light is, the light, this light is like the dawn, which though weak and faint at its first appearance, shines more and more unto the perfect day. It is the work of God, and his work is perfect in kind, though progressive in manner. He will not despise or forsake the day of small things. What comfort we have in knowing that what God has begun in us, he will bring through to completion the sight that he began by our awakening of faith and our looking at him and seeing a relationship with him, seeing his work on, on the cross for us in ways we had never considered before. The miracle of that sight is only the beginning of what he desires for us to see of him. We can have hope in our gradual progress because God 
wants us to be like him. His purpose is to conform us to the image of his son. We, in response, want to be zealous and we also want to be patient with the progress. How do we know we're making progress in the spiritual life? If it's a gradual progress, how do we know we're going? I think the very easiest way is to, to ask yourself, do you love God more every day? And simultaneously, do you hate sin more every day? They have to go together. Because if, we're, if we think we're loving God and we're still entertaining sin, then oh, we're just putting ourselves in the Old Testament just like Israel did and trying to serve God and Baal and the Ashtaroth and trying to do all these things. And Oh yeah, we have the temple. We also have the high places that we go to. When God doesn't answer soon enough, we'll go to there. We do the same things. While kingdom sight is a gradual progress, kingdom sight is also a difficult progress. Spiritual struggle is reality in the Christian life. The path of kingdom sight is often painful and filled with suffering. Why? I ask that question. Why? God, why this suffering? Why why did I have to walk down that path? Now, in those moments, we should, on the other side, as we're walking through them, it, it helps us to understand, God, you are with me. As Pastor Peter uh, was saying, he is with us. We, sometimes all we have is the understanding in our minds because we're not feeling anything. God, I feel you are nowhere around. Uh, all I have is just to believe that you're there. Well, we do that. We believe that he's there, and we're walking down this path, but on the other end, God's, his, Jesus' presence and his power should be revealed to us in a particular way that on the other side, what, what do we usually say? I see him more now. I understand him more now. Don't particularly understand why it occurred, but I understand how God proved his love for me. I see his love for me. Doesn't mean that we wish those things to happen. We don't walk around going, oh, where's the suffering? i got to see Jesus. No. God will make it plain. God will show us. He's leading us. He's guiding us. I, I trust in God's wisdom more than my own because I would do it very differently. But God, in his wisdom, he uses difficulty to free us from love of this world so we can anticipate the world of unabated glory in heaven. The path to the crown involves carrying a cross. I don't know if you've ever read uh, John Bunyan's classic work, Pilgrim's Progress. I I'm still like into shorter things. I prefer the children's version it's called Dangerous Journey. It's excerpts. Don't have to read the whole thing. It's like, wow, this is like cliff notes. What are they? Now, spark notes. Spark notes. What happened to cliff? Either way. Dangerous journey, you read through this and you find Christian going on a journey. And it's the title of it, Dangerous Journey. And once his burden falls off at the cross, that's when the journey really begins. Because as he's walking along, he comes to hill, the hill difficulty. He goes through the valley of death fighting off a dragon. He comes to a castle named Doubting Castle, and the, the ogre giant that houses that castle is named Despair. 
He went through Vanity Fair on his way to the celestial city. On his way, Christian met two friends, faithful and hopeful. Faithful got martyred in Vanity Fair for loving Jesus. It's a great picture of the progress of the Christian life involves difficulty, involves seeing things blurry and then the clarity that comes from them. The difficulty of the gradual seeing of Jesus often involves God's refining fire. We see this in Jeremiah and Malachi. Fire that refines is never comfortable. But later it yields the fruit of God's image in us. Jesus being, us being conformed into the image of God's Son. I love the analogy that Amy Carmichael used. Amy Carmichael was a missionary to India. I was in India for 52 years without ever going back to her home in Ireland. Amy Carmichael, in her, some of her writings, she said she d- describes the refiner that a silversmith will refine silver and the part that he holds it in the fire to the, part, the point that he can see his reflection in the silver. And how very helpful to understand, God, you're holding me in that fire, but the purpose is so you can see yourself. And that's when I know it's done. Rather than us just saying, God, can you please take away the fire? Can you please take away the fire? We recognize his power and his presence in the midst of it. While God's pronouncement of our spiritual blindness, which often comes in the form of discipline, as God, as a father disciplines his son, it's uncomfortable, but it proves to be his refining tool. But there is the need for help on the journey. We need to have faithful and hopeful with us. We all have blind spots. You know, it's interesting that blind spots, you're always supposed to check your blind spot when you're driving, but usually when you're checking your blind spot is when you get in a wreck. Merging, blind spot, ding! But we all have, we have need to be able to see what's on the side of us and then up ahead, all right, slow down enough so you can see what's up ahead. Jesus interestingly tells this man not to go home. Don't enter the village. And I think he does this for the purpose of solidifying the witness and the testimony in this man. Because you know what he's going to walk through? Vanity Fair. He's going to walk through the hill difficulty, the valley of death, to face a dragon and doubting castle where the giant despair lives. Everything Jesus does is strategic. We need to find faithful and hopeful on our journey of sanctification, our journey to see Jesus. Now, the culmination of this, where Jesus, the promised one, comes to, to heal spiritual blindness through his touch, giving an understanding of the progressive nature of our sanctification, the progressive nature of us becoming holy like him. He gives the ultimate goal of his kingdom sight when he does this. Look at verse 25. Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. What I have to understand, what I have to think in that moment is that the very first thing he saw was Jesus. He saw Jesus clearly. Not seeing a form, not seeing some blurred vision, he saw Jesus first and then looked around to confirm, oh yeah, I can see, it's Jesus. And that's the point 
that Jesus is bringing this man to in Isaiah 35 we learn that, that God restores sight for his ransom. In, in Psalm 146, we saw that he loves the righteous. God is committed. He wants his people to see his son. We have that confidence. We have that hope. So we do something. We say, Jesus, heal my spiritual blindness. I want to see you. The point of this passage is that the man sees Jesus. He sees him physically. He sees him spiritually. This passage informs our understanding. It informs our seeing Jesus' mission as he identifies with this man and his fallenness and the effects of sin in the world, of the process associated with freeing sight to see Jesus. This, this passage is about the spiritual sight that God gives his people. We learn of Jesus. We see Jesus. So the conclusion of this and where we take this, we always have to ask, what does this mean right now for me? We, we say, Lord, I need your repeated touch. I can't be satisfied with, well, we are satisfied in one touch because we begin to see things, but we look for, we look for Jesus more. And the way we do that, we say, Jesus, touch my eyes. Touch my, touch my life. You know, with the disciples here, the next chapter, in Mark chapter 9, we have the, the recording of the transfiguration. And Matthew records that when, when everything is terrifying and Peter, James, and John are on their faces, they, they don't know what's going on. They are terrified. Their faces are down. You know what Jesus does? He comes over and touches each one of them. He says, get up. They look around. They don't see anything anymore. Jesus wants to touch his disciples. He wants to touch our eyes. He wants to touch our understanding. We need the repeated touch of Jesus to see him now as we await seeing him face to face, as we sang earlier, face to face in eternity before him. We need, think about it this way, we need Jesus' touch to see Jesus until we see Jesus. We see the glory of God. We learned this from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. We see Jesus in the Bible. The Bible is not just words on a page. This is visine for our spiritual eyes. When we read it, we see him. When we see him, we love him. When we love him, we're satisfied in him. And our eyes are drawn off of this world to the glory that awaits us in all eternity when we stand around his throne forever. Oh, we also need to think about heaven enough too. Heaven's gonna be a wonderful place. Why? We're gonna do some really amazing things. I've committed with my daughter Amelie that we're going to make roller coasters constantly and ride them constantly. I want to race cars there. My wife said, but you'll... No, I won't die. I heard John Piper say that we'll be able to hold our breath for three and four days and dive down into the ocean where right now the pressure would collapse us. We need to think about heaven properly. But you know, the greatest thing about heaven... Jesus is there, and we get to see him, and we get to love him. 
We get to enjoy him. We get to receive the revelation, the ongoing revelation of who he is. Can, can I encourage us? Take the word of God seriously. We need to take the word of God seriously. I, I would put before you that it is not a time factor that prevents you from getting in the word. It's that you don't take the Bible seriously enough. We need to take the Bible seriously because God wants us to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it is with gratitude and thankfulness that we ask for your repeated touch on our eyes. Jesus, we want to see you. Lord, and as we see you, we ask that that would translate in our relationships in, in, in ways that prove, and, uh, that prove fruitful because of how we become hopeful and faithful in somebody else's life as we are seeking for hopeful and faithful in our lives. But Jesus, we cannot thank you enough for taking on the judgment of our spiritual blindness and being the remedy for our spiritual blindness so we can see you forever. Thank you, Lord. Let's stand up. Let's think about through song where our eyes will be opened and we will finally see our Savior. And all His beauty, all His glory, we'll see with clarity. Let our hearts worship as we consider this through song. Soon and very soon. Soon and very soon, my King is coming, robed in righteousness and crowned with love. When I see him, I shall be made like him. Soon and very soon soon and very soon soon and very soon I'll be going to the place he has prepared for me there my sin erases my shame Be 
procession. See the procession, the angels and the elders round the throne. This is what we'll do. At his feet I'll lay my crowns, my worship. day is not now, God, but we trust you for that day. God, this week, help us to wake up each morning believing, Lord, and not taking that for granted. Lord, help us to trust you and live for you, O King, we pray. Amen.